Today's scripture reading is found in Acts 1, 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Dave, for reading God's Word for us. Thank you, Allison and team, for leading us in worship. What a great proclamation, right? Praise forever to the King of Kings. That we have a chance right here, right now, today, to do what we will have the privilege of doing for eternity in the very presence of our King, Lord Jesus. So thanks for entering in and engaging and worshiping with us this morning. We're going to continue to do that in God's Word. And we start a new series today, and if you saw the video that Beth and I made yesterday, maybe you were expecting me to come out with my axe in hand, right? But uh, Beth said, no, it's not the same kind of axe, and it's, she doesn't like me carrying around sharp objects, and so we left the axe at home. But I did bring my mom this morning, even though I didn't get to bring my axe, I brought my mom, and so first time over a year... So if, if you haven't met my mom, she is Betty Gangle, and uh, she lives in a community, assisted living community just close to us down in Canton, and uh, so we're so thrilled that they have opened up now, allowing residents to go out and about and be with family, and so, so glad she could be back with us. One of the things she kept saying to me over the months of this past year was, when can I come back to church? When can I come back to church with you? And so just that... That desire is now fulfilled by being with us here this morning and being with all of you. She missed our family, our church family. So, uh, so thankful for that, that she could be here. And let me just say, too, uh, so thankful that we're able to uh, acknowledge what's coming up this Thursday. Jason mentioned that at the beginning, the National Day of Prayer. So please participate. Last week we had that focus, you know, on praying for the persecuted church. But that continues. Do, keep doing that. 
Expand that out to our nation, to our world, to our community. And whatever God gives you, puts on your heart to pray on Thursday. And if you want to come here, that's great. I'd love to use this sanctuary in the middle of the week for a time of prayer, a place of prayer. And so you just feel free to come. Friends, family members, we'll have prayer points out there to kind of guide your praying on that day if you'd like to kind of represent in person praying on the National Day of Prayer. I invite you to do that. So speaking of that, let's pause for a minute right now. Let's pray, and let's ask God's blessing on our time in His Word. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do thank You that we can come together here today, and we can join our voices in worship and proclaiming that You are our King, that You are King forever, that You rose from the dead, and You are alive and will always be alive for eternity. And thank You, Lord, for that That promise. We thank you for that anticipation. We thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be your church, your people, your hands, and your feet on this earth at this moment in time. I thank you that you are the foundation, as we sang this morning, the foundation of that church, the cornerstone. We, are, we stand firm on you, and we, we serve in the power of your Spirit in us. So as we look into that and we see this morning the beginning of this book of Acts and how you moved among your people, and I pray, Lord, that we would be motivated, inspired to be the church you've called us to be. And I pray that you'd guard my words, help me to accurately and rightly communicate what you have for us today. I pray that you would help us to listen well. I thank you for those that are listening online and maybe other places around this state or this country or the world, somewhere else, listening, hearing this message. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in their lives and their hearts as well as those of us who are right here, right now. Speak to us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it seems a little odd to say this this morning, but the 2020 Tokyo Olympics will take place this summer. Yes, it's 2021, but, and I think they're even still calling them the 2020 Olympics. I guess that's maybe to stay on track, you know, with the every, every four years for a summer Olympics. So it's coming up, and as, at least as far as we know right now, it will happen. No spectators, but they're, all the athletes will be there. They will be competing in Tokyo. And so we're already seeing some of the highlights, some of the, the athletes that we should be watching for on our U.S. team. So let me introduce you to just a few of those. Well, not in person, but we'll put their picture on the screen this morning. So one you probably know of, name recognition, is Simone Biles, right? So she's gymnastics and gymnastics, and she's at the top of this sport and has been for a long time. I read about her this week. She has not lost an all-around competition since 2013, and that's domination. She's expected to dominate at the Olympics in women's gymnastics. Here's another one, maybe this one you haven't heard of, David Budia. He's a diver. He already has a number of medals for platform diving, which I have a great respect for these guys that jump off these platforms in the stratosphere down into water. But he was injured, I think it was this past year, by one of those dives, landed wrong. I, you know, it's just those things you never want to see, you know, on, and, and especially in slow motion. And, and so he is now continuing to compete, but not off the platform. Now he's on the springboard, but he's still expected to do well, even with that transition. So watch for his name. Caleb Dressel is another. He's, he's a swimmer. He's expected to be a gold, medal, a gold medal contender in seven swimming events. And this is a guy that could give uh, Michael Phelps a run for his medal count, right? 
One more this morning, Chloe Diger. She's a cycler, gold medal contender, not only on road racing, but on a track. They do that apparently as well as an Olympic event, biking on the track. She's a contender. Even though she also had an accident, this last fall she went over a guardrail in a race, lacerated her leg, something fierce, but she's back and she's competing and expecting, expected a medal. Accomplishments. We're looking for and waiting for and anticipating the accomplishments of these athletes. And in ancient Greece, where the Olympics started, there's a word, a Greek word that was used to to describe those accomplishments of those athletes. It's the word praxis. And that word praxis, that Greek word, is translated into the English word that is the name of the book that we are about to study. Acts. Acts. Accomplishments. And so when we talk about the acts of the apostles, it means from that Greek root word, the accomplishments of these apostles, of these followers of Jesus, the spiritual heroes of the early church. Acts, the book, is the history of what happened to Jesus' followers after Christ's suffering and death and resurrection and ascension. This is what happened to those he left behind. And if the Gospels then tell the story of the passion of the Christ, the book of Acts tells the story of the passion of the Christ's followers. That's what we see in this book that we're just about to launch into this morning. You know, more accurately, I mentioned this on the video yesterday too, we know that the book of Acts is not just about the accomplishments of some people. It's actually the accomplishments of God's Spirit at work in and through those people. In fact, some have said we should actually call the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit, better named in fact, you know, think about to the Olympic comparison there. If, if Acts was a record of the Olympic athletes' accomplishments, they probably would be accused of doping in our day and age because they were filled with a power that was not their own. There was something in them that allowed them to do what they did. And we know it was the power of God's Holy Spirit enabling ordinary people to accomplish these, these extraordinary acts. So why should we do this? Why do we launch into this study of the history of the early church? Well, let me give you a couple reasons this morning. I think one is because this same Holy Spirit that we're going to talk about this morning who indwelled those early believers also indwells those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So if, he's, if you know Jesus this morning, you have His Holy Spirit in you, the same Spirit that empowered the early church. But I think it's also important right now because we're coming back together after this year of this pandemic. We're coming back together as the church. We're kind of regathering, rejoining in fellowship and in worship. And so I think it's vitally important and the timing is good for us to go back to God's Word and say, what does it mean to be the church? What is our calling? How did this all start? How does God work in us to accomplish His purposes, His will, His plan for the church during this age? It's all right here in the book of Acts. And so my hope as we go through this book is that the book of Acts will enlighten us and encourage us and motivate us to be the church and to accomplish our mission as a church, specifically as Trinity 
church. Remember our mission? Shining the light of Christ for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit. That we will see clearly in the book of Acts. Say it with me if you would one more time if you remember. Shining the light of Christ for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit. And that is the book of Acts. And that is our experience as His church here and now. So let me start us this morning with just some basic information about the book. Let me introduce you a little bit to the book of Acts. The author, as you probably already know, is Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. It's kind of an unusual field that he was in for one of the writers of the New Testament, a medical doctor. It was a missionary companion of Paul. In fact, parts of Acts, and you'll see this as we go through, he wrote in a, in a first-person a point of view. He was there. He was an eyewitness. So occasionally as we go through the Acts, we'll note this. He says, we did this. We went here because he was right there. And if you take Luke's gospel, which we know he wrote the account of Christ's life, and then you put it together with the book of Acts, which is almost like a sequel to the gospel of Luke, those two books make up more than 25% of the whole New Testament. So Luke is a very important writer, author of the New Testament. And he addresses his work to someone named Theophilus. You see that at the beginning of Luke. You see it at the beginning of Acts. The name means lover of God. And it's a Greek name, so it's possible this was an, a specific person. And maybe somebody who was not a Jew, was, was a Gentile, was a Greek, and Luke is writing this account so that he understands better who Jesus was and what the church was all about. But maybe it's, it's symbolic. Maybe it's a name that Luke gave to refer to anyone who would read his account who loved God and wanted to know more about Jesus, his son. What we do know is that Luke clearly took his historical recording seriously and he was very purposeful in his approach. Let me take you back to Luke. Go ahead and stay in Acts if you're there, but let me take you back to the beginning of Luke. We'll put the words on the screen. These first four verses of Luke 1, Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he writes this account for the specific reason. He's going to say he's been very careful in what he's, what he's brought together to give us a historical, accurate record of the life of Christ. And now if you go to Acts, notice the connection here. So if you're in Acts or you have it on your phone, please follow along this morning. Now we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, which we know now refers to the gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So now as we move into the book of Acts, we're seeing the disciples, the apostles, following through on those instructions that Jesus gave them. How did they live that out? And as he moves into this sequel, he shows us how the apostles followed those instructions to the T. And his attention to detail here is extraordinary. So let me just give you a few kind of interesting facts about, about the book of Acts. He mentions 
no fewer than 80 geographical locations. I mean, Luke is constantly talking about cities and towns and places and, and bodies of water and all this. He, he wants us to know where all this action is taking place. He gives us the names of some 100 people, 100 people by name just in the book of Acts. And he provides us with at least partial texts of some 24 speeches and sermons so for Luke, his, he, it's important for him to give the exact words that were spoken and heard, 24 speeches and sermons. In fact, of the 1,000 verses that make up the book of Acts, 300 of those verses are actual words from those speeches or sermons. So this historical Acts is, is vitally important for us. Let me give you a couple reasons why I think it's important. The book of Acts connects the Gospels to the epistles. So you have the Gospels, you know, the story of Jesus' life, and you have the epistles, the letters written by the followers of Jesus. And that, that bridge, that connection point right between them is the book of Acts. And so reading it, knowing it, not only helps us see how the Gospels apply and connect to the epistles, but it shows us that flow and it shows us the context for the epistles. If you just read the letters, the epistles, if you didn't have the book of Acts, you wouldn't understand a lot of the people and places and events. Because when Paul writes those letters, you can go back to the book of Acts and you can see what was happening. What, was, what happened in that church? What happened in that town when he visited there? I love the book of Acts because it brings the whole New Testament together. And the book of Acts also traces the growth of the church. From its Jewish roots, remember it started with mostly just Jews who were around Jesus and followed Him, but it branches out. These Gentile branches began reaching all over the world. It starts with these 50 people that are huddled up in a room on the day of Pentecost, and it immediately starts growing until there are thousands of followers of Christ all over the known world. And the book of Acts shows us how Christianity is distinct from Judaism. We're going to see that very clearly in the book. But it also shows us how this, this movement of Christianity became something that people identified it as something that would turn the world upside down. In fact, that phrase is used. You'll see that as we come to it a little later in the book of Acts. Turn the world upside down. Back in the 1990s, my dad wrote a commentary on the book of Acts for Holman Publishing Company. And I brought it with me, have it on my shelf. My dad passed away about 12 years ago. But I love this, that I still have him and his words and, and things and books that he wrote like this. So he starts this commentary, the very first phrase, I love this phrase that he writes in here. He says, from Pentecostal fire in Jerusalem to unhindered gospel proclamation in a Roman prison. Acts unfolds the exciting story of God working to take the gospel message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And that phrase, to the ends of the earth, is the last part of Acts 1.8, and we've chosen it as the title for this series. So you're going to hear that over and over. You're going to see this, this image all throughout this spring and summer because that's the calling. And that phrase really captures what happens in the book of Acts. It describes the far-reaching power of the gospel. It describes the far-reaching power of the, the Holy Spirit. It gives us the mandate for the church. 
right there, that we're to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's all captured in that phrase. So that's our title. That's our series. This is our journey together for the next months. And we're going to see in the open verses of Acts that Jesus sends out His witnesses as soon as He leaves, just as He's about to leave. But He sends them with proof. He sends them with a promise. And He sends them with power. That's the first part of Acts. So now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 3 here. And our first point for this morning is that Christ's witnesses have the proof. Have the proof. So Luke reaches back. And he picks us up, takes us right back to the crucifixion, back to the resurrection. In fact, you might remember this verse. You hear it, it'll sound familiar. If you were here on Easter Sunday, we looked at this verse. We read it. We tied it into these witnesses, these followers of Jesus who were impacted by the resurrection. So look at verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So if you remember from that Easter message, we talked about how the followers of Jesus desperately needed to see Jesus. They were hopeless. They were lost. They didn't know what to do, where to go, what to think, what to believe when Jesus died on that cross. So when He comes back from the dead and He rises from the tomb, they needed to see the resurrected, glorified Jesus to restore their faith, to restore their hope. But it wasn't just about kind of getting their courage back. Jesus appeared to them so that they could be authentic witnesses, so that they could say, I saw him, I heard him, I talked to him, I ate with him. All these followers of Jesus that would be able to say, we saw him, we are witnesses. And that's why the book of Acts launches with this idea of being witnesses. I read a story that goes way back in early years when the Christian missionary movement was just beginning in the country of China. And the story tells, is about a, a Chinese farmer who found his way to one of these missionary hospitals that had been built there. He came unable to see. So they took him into this hospital, treated him. There's cataracts, removed the cataracts from his eyes, talked to him about Jesus. And when he left that hospital, he came back a number of days later with a rope. And holding on to that rope were a number of other blind Chinese people who he'd brought back to the very place that had helped him. He didn't know how to heal their blindness. He couldn't do it himself. He didn't even know the process of what had been done to him. He couldn't even explain how that operation had given him sight. He didn't know very much about Jesus to tell them yet, but what he did is he knew that he had been blind and he could now see and he could bring others to receive their sight as well. Because that's what a witness does. A witness is to tell others about what's happened to them so that they can experience that too. And that's our calling. That's what it means to be a witness. Even if you, you can't, which you can't, you can't save other people, you may not be able to fully even explain the gospel to somebody else yet, but what you can do is bring them to Jesus. 
bring them to others who can explain that healing power. If you've personally experienced that life-changing power in your life, then you are a witness. You can share your experience. You can bring others to meet the one who healed you. Verse 3 tells us something else, though. Another reason Jesus hung around it was to show himself to his followers, but also to teach them. So Luke tells us in this verse that for 40 days he taught his followers about the kingdom of God. And, and we talked about this on Easter Sunday. Luke records this at the end of his gospel. And he says that what Jesus told them about the kingdom was that it would be a kingdom of, of repentance and confession and forgiveness of sin. That that would be the, the center point of what it was all about. And that his kingdom would reach the world, that it was no longer going to be confined just to Israel, to the Jews, that it was for the world, which was such a paradigm shift. Remember, you put yourself in the shoes of, of these Jews, hearing, expecting that the kingdom was for them, for their nation, and now that gets blown out of the water and Jesus expands their view of the kingdom. So for us, as we read this verse in the beginning of Acts, for us to be witnesses like these early believers were witnesses then we need to know the message that he wants us to proclaim. It starts with just a simple witness. Once I was blind and now I see. But as we get to know the Lord Jesus, we get to know his word, we get to know the gospel, we grasp it, we understand it, and we're able to explain it and tell it to others. That's why Jesus taught them for those 40 days was so that they could then teach and tell others. And you know, I don't, maybe you get tired of hearing that here. We talk about the gospel all the time and the gospel-centeredness and gospel priority here at Trinity. But that's our calling. That's the message that Jesus has given us. If we're not focused on the gospel, then we're off base. And I would say, too, if you consider yourself part of the Trinity family, if you've not yet gone through what we call D101, Discipleship 101. We started that course two years ago. A lot of you went through it in person then. We have it on our website. If you haven't watched those four videos that give you the basics of the gospel, the verses in God's Word that explain how to become a follower of Jesus, then please go back and watch that. It's core to being a part of Trinity, to being a believer. It's understanding the gospel of the kingdom. And this is what we have. We have the proof of Christ's resurrection, we are witnesses of Him, and we have the life-changing message of the gospel to give to others. Which leads us to the second part of what goes on here in Acts 1. Christ's witnesses have the promise. So He gives them proof that He is alive, He gives them the message of the kingdom, <clears throat> but then He gives them a promise. There's another post-resurrection conversation that happens here in verse 4. On one occasion, Luke says, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, he tells them to wait, which seems odd, doesn't it? They've, they've just come through all this training and preparation, and, and Jesus is about to leave them. And you would think he'd be saying, go, now's the time to go, get out there. But first he says, stop, wait, don't go anywhere, don't do anything until you receive the gift, until you receive this promise. What was the gift? Well, Jesus had spoken about it already to his disciples in the upper room. Go back to John 14, we'll put these words on the screen. Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. 
Who is that? The Spirit of truth. The promise Jesus had been making to his disciples all along. Because, you see, they were not ready for prime time. They were not ready to go out. They were not ready to be witnesses until this promise was fulfilled in them. They had to wait for this. They needed the Spirit. Jesus wanted to make sure they would not try to move out on their own, in their own strength, by their own power, on their own agenda. It had to be motivated and empowered by the Spirit. You know, sometimes God asks us to be patient, right? Sometimes He asks us to wait, to wait on Him rather than jumping ahead on our own ideas and our own ways. You know, our Trinity Men's Group has been studying the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and studying a book by Tim Keller on that book of Mark. And this very week that we're coming up to, the chapter is called The Waiting. It's about waiting. Sometimes Jesus didn't give people what they wanted immediately. And the story specifically in Mark is about Jairus. Remember the synagogue leader who comes to Jesus. His daughter is dying. This guy is desperate. He says, Jesus, please come to my house right away. Come and heal my daughter. So he shows great faith just coming to Jesus, asking Jesus to come. And so Jesus starts on his way, and then he's stopped. He's delayed. A woman reaches out and touches him. She needs healing too. And Jesus stops and has a conversation. <clears throat> and you can just imagine this father's anxiety, right? Don't, don't, don't stop and talk. Don't stop. My daughter is dying. We've got to get there quickly. And as they're waiting, the word comes. Sure enough, she's died. This man surely is distraught. But Jesus looks at him and he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. It's in the waiting that now his faith is getting stretched out even more. It's in the waiting now he has to trust Jesus not just to heal his daughter, but to raise his daughter back to life. Can Jesus do this? He's wondering. And Keller points out in this chapter, he says, it's often for us in the waiting that our faith gets stretched and grown the most. So Jesus went with the man, and sure enough, he raised her to life. What was it Jesus' followers needed? What were they to wait for? Well, the promise comes in verse 5. For Jesus baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's the promise. And sure enough, ten days later on Pentecost, the Spirit came. And it's interesting to me that Jesus connects it to John's baptism. Why does, he, why does he mention that? Why doesn't he just say, the Holy Spirit's going to come? He ties it back in. But remember, this is what John had prophesied as well. At the very beginning, before anybody had heard Jesus speak about any of this, John the Baptist said it. Mark 1, verse 8. John says to his followers, he says, I baptize you with water, but he, pointing to Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this promise had been from the very beginning. And he ties it to water baptism, I think, to understand that this is a symbol. Water baptism, we understand, it does not save us. It's a symbol, a picture of our salvation. And it's also, Jesus is tying it in to show us, it's a picture that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes on us and fills us, covers us, works in us in these extraordinary ways. This was a brand new idea. 
that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell God's people and stay with them. This wasn't the way it had been in the Old Testament. Do you, you remember when we, this is on Palm Sunday, we had two of our young men, two of our Joy House graduates who came and were part of that baptism service that day, <clears throat> put down and under the water, came up out of the water, and you remember when they came out just totally dripping wet. They walked across the stage and down the steps and across the floor, and you could see the puddles of water, their footsteps that they left when they walked away. The water had totally covered them. And Jesus is saying, my spirit is going to cover you, completely wash over you, and be with you to stay. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, His Spirit lives in you. You have been baptized by His Spirit. And this promise is for us. And a gift of that Spirit enables us to be His witnesses. See, Jesus didn't just say, be my witnesses. He said, I have a promise for you. My Spirit will come and indwell you and enable you to be those witnesses. But there's more to that gift. This is our third point today. Christ's witnesses also have the power. Because the Spirit comes not just to hang around and give us a little advice every now and then. He is the very power that we need to live the Christian life. Look how Luke takes us now to the last appearance. Here's the, here's the ascension of Jesus, verse 6. They gathered around Him and they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So I read that and I think, well, did they still not get it? We talked about this on Easter Sunday too, right? They still were not quite understanding. They thought maybe this, they got the idea of the kingdom. Jesus had been talking about it for 40 days. You would think they would get it. But they thought still this was going to be a literal Jewish kingdom that Jesus would establish. And here's the reason why they probably thought it went now. There's, there's a reason for this. They weren't just shooting in the dark here. Because in the Old Testament, whenever you see the promise of the coming of God's Spirit, it is almost always in conjunction with the promise of the kingdom. And so for Jews, they put this together. Well, Jesus, if you've been talking about the Spirit coming, then that must mean the kingdom is right on its heels. Is that right? That's what they're asking. But there was something they had missed. Not about the nature of the kingdom, but about the timing of that kingdom. And Jesus corrects it in verse 7. Notice what he says to them. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't laugh at them. He doesn't, he doesn't scold them. He just says, it is not for you to know the dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, that time will come. That establishment of that literal kingdom will come. But you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about the dates. You don't need to worry about when that's coming. It's not right now. Let God take care of the timing. Remember, you are witnesses. And what does a witness do? A witness talks about what has already happened. A witness is not a prophet telling about what will come. A witness tells of what has been. That's our primary calling. Witnesses focus more on what, telling about what God has already done, not just on trying to guess what God will do and when He will do it. You know, and I think we make this mistake maybe more often than we realize it. We spend our time thinking about and even talking about what's, what we think is coming and 
where are we headed? And what are our goals? It's not that those things are bad, but sometimes we get so focused on that we forget to do our primary calling, which is to witness of what has already happened, what God has already done, the salvation He's already provided. We cannot miss that. It's because we're thinking too far ahead. That's what Jesus was pointing out right here. But He didn't completely ignore their question either. He does give them a little glimpse of what is to come in the near future at least. Look at verse 8. And this verse, as you probably know, is key to the whole book of Acts. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this promised Spirit would come and empower them to be the witnesses that Jesus was calling them to be, and when that happened to them, that's when the gospel would spread. And it would spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, out to the ends of the earth. In fact, this verse becomes an outline for the book of Acts. And perhaps you've seen this, heard this, studied this before, but let me show it to you because this is extraordinary. The first seven chapters of Acts, we're right here. We're right in Jerusalem. That's where it starts. And we see all the action happening there. But then in, in chapters 8 through 12, it begins to spread out. Persecution is what pushes it out. And so the gospel begins to go out to Judea, out to Samaria, now the Samaritans, who were not thought of highly by the Jews, now become part of the kingdom plan. And this is, again, the paradigm shift. And then it goes even beyond. So chapters 13 to 28, we see the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles being included as well. This extraordinary spread of the gospel, of the witness, of the church. <clears throat> and don't miss this point right here. Because the followers of Jesus did not have the power to be those witnesses, to spread that gospel in and of themselves. They could not have done it if it were not for the power of the Holy Spirit within them. But once they were given that Spirit, they could do what God had called them to do. Then they could be witnesses. Then the gospel could spread. Then the church could grow. And it would be for everyone. Notice here that Jesus doesn't say, well, now just you 12 apostles, those of you that followed me were the closest to me, you're going to be the witnesses, you're going to get the Spirit. No. This promise is for all of them. The Spirit would come on every believer, and so every believer with the Spirit would also be a witness. This church is our calling still. We are witnesses we are empowered by God's Spirit to witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us to be able to explain and tell the gospel of salvation to anyone who will listen. We cannot neglect this gift. We cannot neglect that calling. And we cannot try to do God's work to serve Him, to live our lives in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own power. It will not work. I saw something this week. I'd, I'd seen this commercial a few times, and I just felt like I had to share it. It's a humorous uh, approach, and it's, I'm not even going to tell you what it's advertising, but you'll see, I think, how it applies to the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch this 20-second video.
This is a vivid picture of if, what happens if we try to live the Christian life in our own power. It's a little tiny blower. But here's the point. God has given us the real blower, the wind. That's what spirit means. It means wind. It means breath. He's given us that power. Why would we try to live the Christian life, to be the witnesses, to share the gospel, to be the church with a little tiny handheld blower? It's the spirit. It's the spirit at work in us. It's the spirit blowing through us. We're going to see that over and over again through the book of Acts. It's not about self-effort. It's not about self-help. It's not about self-righteousness. It's about the power of God's Spirit at work in us. And those were the last words Jesus spoke. To the ends of the earth, He said, and then He left. Look at verse 9. After this, after He said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And you just see Jesus' followers there just looking up like in shock and in awe probably, in shock of what had just happened, in awe of Jesus leaving and heading up into the clouds, but also wondering, how do we do this without Him? That's why they had to wait. So two angels come and they help calm them down or explain things to them, which wasn't usually the case when angels came. It just usually made people more afraid. But they needed to hear these next words. So verse 11, the last verse in our passage today. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The promised return of Christ is what motivates our witness. It's the promised return of Jesus Christ that is the motivating force for the church itself. And it's the promised return of Jesus that moves us to accomplish this, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth so that He will come back soon. We live in that anticipation, that expectation. And that's what drives us. That's what motivates us. And that's why we celebrate the table. It's a great lead-in to what we want to do right now in celebrating the Lord's table because this is not only a look back. It is that. We look back to what Jesus did and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that this represents the, the body and the blood of Jesus. But Paul also says in that passage in verse 26, he says, do this until he comes again. So this table looks forward as well. It's always a reminder every time we celebrate this that Jesus is coming back and that we have a job to do until he comes back, to be the church, to be his witnesses, to share the gospel. So as we come to table, the table this morning, we want to do that. We want to look forward and we want to look back. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have made that commitment to Him as your Savior, you've received His gift of eternal life and His Spirit, then we invite you to participate. You don't have to be a member of Trinity Church. You are invited to participate. But one thing we are called to do in the Bible is to, is to check our hearts to make sure that we're on track with Him, we've confessed our sin. And so this morning as we prepare for this table, maybe as a result of hearing this passage in Acts 1, maybe the confession is, Lord, I, I have not been listening to Your Spirit. I know He lives within me, I'm, I'm saved, but I have not been attentive to the leading of Your Spirit in my life. 
Forgive me for that. Maybe that's the confession. Maybe it's, Lord, I have not been the witness you've called me to be. I've kept my mouth shut. I haven't been willing to talk about you. And, and I, I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. Maybe that's the confession this morning. Whatever it might be, in whatever way you need to confess your sin and receive that precious gift of forgiveness and come clean this morning, I want you to take just a few moments to do that. Just quietly, silently, right where you are, just take a moment of silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in, together in prayer. Lord Jesus, this morning we look back and we say thank you for your willingness to endure the suffering, to go to the cross, to die for our sin. And we're so thankful that you rose again on the third day and that you are alive at the right hand of the Father. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for sending the gift of your Spirit to empower us and enable us to be the witnesses you've called us to be. And we look forward to the, the promise that you are coming back again. And because of that promise, that anticipation, Lord, we want to be faithful witnesses. We want to be active as your church representing your kingdom here on earth. Help us to do that well. Thank you for hearing our prayers of confession. Thank you for your forgiveness that washes over us and makes us clean right here, right now, so that we can celebrate this table with full freedom and joy. Thank you for that. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.